Welcome to In the Principal's Office. I'm Angie Dillman, a high school principal. And I'm Michelle Liu, an assistant principal. And if you've ever wondered about the conversations that go on behind closed doors of a principal's office, then you've come to the right place. Michelle, I am so excited for today's episode. Tell us a little bit about our guest. Sorry, everybody. I know you're really upset that you're not going to hear us talk for 20 minutes, but I'm excited to say that our guest is Dr. Stephanie Phillips. She was my professor in my USC program. She's also the CEO of Chamberlain Educational Foundation. She is definitely legit and Our conversation with Dr. Phillips is my favorite, favorite episode so far, and I think everyone's going to really enjoy this truly inspirational lady. She has so much knowledge. She's so passionate, and she's just well-spoken. I was editing the episode, and I didn't have to touch her parts. Yeah, everything she said was pure gold, and I got goosebumps just hearing her speak and feeling her passion, and I hope everyone feels the same way. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Stephanie Phillips. Welcome to our show, Dr. Phillips. It is so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. I I just hope that I can be of interest or be of help to anybody who's listening. Let's just chat it up for a bit. Dr. Phillips, first of all, I was trying in my mind to call you Stephanie, and I just couldn't do it. I have no idea, (laughs) which is the craziest thing. Sometimes when I'm texting her, I'm like, hello, Dr. Phillips. (laughs) No, I'm really not very formal. So if you want to call me Stephanie, that's very cool with me. If you want to call me Dr. Phillips, totally up to you. But I'm not really hung up on titles because in my world, we're all doing this work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all have different roles, but our roles are definitely connected and they're all important. But at the end of the day, we're all just here doing our level best to get this work done for our kids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we definitely are in this together and now more than ever before, like we're reinventing stuff we used to be pretty good at. Now we don't know. This is my first time meeting Dr. Phillips, so I'm very excited to have you here. Michelle has been talking about you for months. You were her first professor in our program at USC. And one day she came into work and said, you know, like we were having this great discussion last night in class and Dr. Phillips was sharing how universities are really good at sharing their story and marketing themselves. And K-12, they're just not. It was one of the leading conversations that got us to create a podcast and think that we had something to say or a story to tell. So thank you. Oh, yeah, you're like so welcome. You're the founding member of this podcast. <laughs> like, true. what the heck? And I think the other thing that you said, when you think of K-12 districts, they could be interchangeable in terms of their identity. And man, that was the epiphany. It's mm-hmm. not so much that, oh, we have to have a brand and we have to have this. It wasn't that. We're doing great things. All of the districts are. Absolutely. But the fact that no one knows about it, the fact that you can't distinguish them, that was what really struck me. When you said that back to me, I, I responded in my head going, well, you know, there will be systems leaders and community members who would say, that's absolutely not true because I moved to this community because of the schools. And I think on exception, that is absolutely true. But in terms of the viability of K-12 education generally, on a conceptual level, it's very interchangeable. It's Mm -hmm. public school versus private school. It's not like USC versus UCLA that have very different identities, even though they offer very similar degree packages, et cetera. It's more like, well, you know, I live in this community, so my options are limited to here, and I'm not going to move, so this is it. This is the best I can get within this context. I have to choose these particular programs. From community to community, we want to have high rigor. We want to have A through G level classes. We want to have all the different socio-emotional supports that come with all of that, and we want to be able to say we're the best, and that's true, and we do want that. When you have these discussions about public education, it's not like New York City schools is just being the hell out of LAUSD. No, <laughs> we're not having those discussions in terms of I should move to LA from New York because the schools are that much better. Schools are kind of a consequence of where we live as opposed to a real decision as to how we want to move forward in our personal lives. And that's different because we do choose our universities. We do choose our jobs and our companies and those things drive where we live. Schools kind of is the byproduct of all those other decisions. Do you think charters are good at telling their story and selling more of an identity. 
I used to think that writ large, they had better communication strategies than we did. And in some cases, I think that's true, like in certain areas of the state and maybe in the country. But overall, I've worked with a bunch of charters from bigger charter system CMOs to just those individual mom and pop charters. And generally speaking, they have the same problem that traditional K-12 schools do. Most people don't care unless they have a situation in that school building. Other than that, it's just another school down the street. I'm not sure how we wholesale change that, but I think that this type of conversation is one of those that could start opening up conversations about it. We've never worked in a charter. We've only worked in K-12 comprehensive school districts. And I think from the outside, it's easy to get an impression about what happens in a charter. What do you think is the biggest difference in the experience for parents and students in a charter versus a traditional public? That's a really good question. I think that we don't know. (laughs) We have no idea. I'm no expert by any means, but I have seen a lot of different spaces and configurations of how these things work. And from my perspective, I think charter schools kind of see themselves from the inside out. They see themselves differently. They see themselves as innovators, as there to not just abide by the laws and rules. I think they see themselves as being able to rise above certain circumstances that traditional public schools can't because of the different regulations in order to be compliant with state law or compliant with funding requirements, all of these things that we have to deal with. And in some ways, charter schools have tremendous flexibility in terms of how those things play out. Most of them don't have union contracts, although some of them do. So there's a lot more collaboration that happens, I won't say on the fly, but intentional collaboration around how these things will look as opposed to a contract that has been sitting on that shelf for 30 years that we've bargained that away and that's never coming back. So I think charter schools don't feel themselves in these boxes that our traditional systems do. And that's great. That flexibility has helped some charters become very successful. I also think that now that we're 20 years into this whole charter school movement, that it should inform some decision making at the highest levels in terms of what things could we now implement in the public system that would benefit all schools and all students. And I don't know that that conversation has actually happened, but I do know, and I'll say this from the highest tree, I say it all the time, there are great traditional public schools. And there are great programs that are happening day in and day out for the most needy kids. That is not happening consistent enough in either the traditional schools or the charter schools as I look through the data. And so my question is, when are we going to put aside adult issues of funding and governance and, you know, all of these other things that we have created and say, let's talk about what students need, period. Yeah. Let's talk about how we can pool our resources, our knowledge. And if they're separate systems, I understand there's some territorialism, but knowledge is free. Right. Right? And if we are the educators that we believe ourselves to be, we want the best for the most amount of kids that we can impact. And so if I'm at ABC's middle school and I have cracked the code on seventh grade math and algebra readiness, shouldn't I want to share that? Whether you're a charter school, whether you're another traditional school, let's set aside these artificial constraints and get together and figure out how we can serve our babies better. Yeah, definitely. We were so lucky to get this special ed teacher from LAUSD. She lives out this way and it was easier for her. She was an administrator. She built a literacy program for LAUSD. She has many strengths. When she came here, we she helped us build some intervention programs. And I was like, okay, like what program do you want me to buy? And she's like, it's not a program. Don't buy anything. It's strategies. Yes. It's Score. strategies. Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> if there are these strategies that everybody knows works, why don't yeah. I know about them? Why yes. aren't we doing them? That's right. That's exactly right. There's a knowledge and a body of information out there that can be shared. It can be learned. It can be, you know, coached and implemented. And is it perfect? No. But as we do these things that we know are good for kids, and as we learn more about how we can do things even better, we should be working together and not as political opposition. It's really sad because we are the adults in the room. We are the leaders in the system. And if we feel frustrated, 
isolated and stymied, then where do we leave our kids? We're looking to the next person for the answers. We know we're looking to our superintendents. The superintendents are looking to the county. The county's looking to the state. What do I do? Where's the playbook? Which page yep. do I go for COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> and there, there isn't one. And I'm so lucky to have Michelle because we're both okay. We just have to do it. <laughs> like we have to invent this. And when you get the right people in the room, the right adults, then you can get somewhere. We don't have to reinvent everything, but there isn't this system of sharing those strategies. Yep. You guys are, I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Like I'm here because I want to be a support in any way that I can, but to be able to be a part of a new wave of thinking around how we get this done and that courageous leadership that says, well, it doesn't exist. So I guess I'm it. Right. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> leadership does count. And those are the examples of leadership that have moved school communities forward. We all read the case studies around schools that are 90, 90, 90. So how do we all get there? I mean, we've read case studies, but a lot of it is that X factor of leadership that says, you know what? Hell or high water, yeah. we're going and we're going together. I hate to say it, but it doesn't exist in all cases. What I've learned being a new administrator and also taking on building programs for what our students need. One is, and this is something that the teacher we were mentioning previously who built the literacy program, last year we would have all these discussions. I feel like she's a mentor to me as well, which she also knows. <laughs> you too. And one of the things she told me too was whatever intervention that you have, whatever program, it has to be specific and meaningful to the population at your school. That's and right. that's why I think it doesn't look the same. And that's why she told Angie, like, no, I'm not going to just pull a program and plop it on top of our school. We have to be intentional. We have to see what they need. And then we build a program to address those needs. It blew my mind. But now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, duh. <laughs> like, like, doesn't that sound obvious how you should do anything in life? <laughs> it does. Exactly what you said is, is really the key. But there's one thing missing that we sometimes forget about. From building to building and from school to school, the assets in that building look different. They're there, but they may look different. The experience level of the teachers may be different. The expertise of the teachers may be different. The leadership experiences may be different. And that's all good. You know, it's not all cut and dry in terms of just widgets. And they're not interchangeable in that sense. But at that point, the leader then has to look and survey not only the student need and the community need, but what assets do you already have that you can move around to address those needs and then think about where your gaps are. There's philanthropy there. There's district office there. There's community volunteer. There's all kinds of other supporting casts who can come in and help you shore up. But the leadership has to really define and paint the picture of what is it I'm trying to accomplish? What tools do I have? And then what help do I need? I've had more people come to me when I was a superintendent and they would be like, um, Dr. Phillips, I need $50,000 or I need an FTE so that, you know, I can have an extra reading coach. And my thing is, well, what's your plan and what are you trying to accomplish? Which I think is a viable question, right? And they would be like, well, I just need more bodies. I need more hands. One, it doesn't tell you. <laughs> what your person's going to be doing. But second, it doesn't give me confidence that that's the highest use of that resource. Because any principal that I've ever talked to will never turn down an extra set of hands. I just don't know what they'd be doing in the building. Some of them will be at high high uses and some of them will be die cutting, you know, squares for the kindergarten lesson. I don't know. As a leader, you got to be really clear about what you're trying to accomplish and then what resources are you willing to move around your chessboard to try to get there and then ask for help. But don't be afraid to ask for help, but just be clear about what you want and what you need. It's hard sometimes as a leader, you know, or anyone in leadership, I know I need someone to teach reading, but I don't know what those high impact strategies are. I just need them to do it. Like they need to know. And I don't know where this starts, you know, whether it's conversations like this and sharing or in our teacher training programs, do we need to really focus more on the teaching part rather than the content part? I feel like sometimes when a K-12 district, we have reading experts in this district. They're called elementary teachers. <laughs> like they're really good at this stuff. That's right. But then at high school, when we get students who are deficient in those areas, we know they can't read as well as they should, but we don't have those specific skills about how to train. And I think that that type of clarity 
starts the real conversation as to how do we support incoming ninth graders who are really not proficient where we expect them to be? What are the strategies that we can collectively agree on that will help our kids? It's not about, well, this teacher gets all the kids who are not proficient and then the IB teacher or the gate teacher, they're off and running, but you got all these other people flailing over here because there's not that support. Looking at how we deal with the current resources and then saying, you know what, if every high school is having this issue, then how can we collectively advocate for additional resources, whether they're at site-based or whether we advocate for an additional time or a semester where kids are programmed differently so that they catch up? It's not the kid's fault that they came to you without those skills. And I'm not blaming other teachers as much as, as a system, we just don't have those strategies baked in. So if there's a bigger cadre of kids who need specific things, how do we address them from a larger context as opposed to saying, you know what, Joe, you just aren't cutting it, so you got to take English over again. Well, that's not going to inspire the kid to try to do anything different except for cut school, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, go somewhere else. And what are we doing to make sure that when Joe takes English again, that it's taught differently? Exactly. One thing that I'm really interested moving forward, I'm going to think about more is harnessing and using the expertise of our special education staff because they have a lot more strategies on how to deal with students that have gaps in all areas and they're flexible, they're innovative, they're outside of the box. They have the ability to look in the broad picture. So they're looking at what year long a student on their case would might need to know, but they also have the ability to look and say, okay, this is not working here in this class. You're failing because of these things. What supports can I put in place to help you get where you need to be and fill those gaps so you can learn the certain amount of content in the class? What you said, Dr. Phillip, harnessing who you have at your school, harnessing their, their strengths and their abilities and their expertise. There's so much of that in our special education department. This teacher, by the way, that we've been talking about, she's a special ed teacher. Of course she is. Yeah. <laughs> of course. She's awesome. I kind of want to shift gears because I think there's something in your background that's super interesting that you come from like the world of five. Finance? I do. I do. <laughs> that is one of the most intimidating areas, I think, for most educators who want to move up. So how did you start there and make this transition? Because you have like such a leg up on everybody else. It is interesting. And I won't give you the long story. But in short, I had a bachelor's degree in managerial economics, a master's degree in business administration with focus in finance. And I was going for broke in the finance arena. And a friend of mine said, hey, there's this job over here in this school district and you'd be wonderful. They need somebody like you. It was a director of finance. It was nothing instructional at all. And so I went, I talked to the people. I liked them. I have educators in my family, generally speaking, you know, I thought it was a good thing. You know, my grandmother would be proud. And so went in there and the only reason why I ended up going back to school to get a doctorate in educational leadership and went into curriculum instructions and took academy classes and things like that was because I felt like like it was my job to know the instructional program so that I could allocate funds better, so that I could be a support and impact kids learning from my seat, right? I wasn't trying to be in anybody else's seat. I just wanted to understand. I wanted to understand the lingo, the rationale, and be able to be in the conversation instead of just writing checks. And so that was my entree. And and the more I got into it, of course, I, the, the more I got into all these other conversations and I started doing classroom walks with the CAO and just all these things. And eventually I was, I was sitting up there telling them, no, these strategies aren't good enough. And where's our comprehensive ELD plan for our... English learners. And I started being that instructional advocate for black and brown kids in a district at that time that was totally at the top and all the principals were white. But most of our population of students was like 75% Latinx and very few African-Americans, but that doesn't matter, right? Kids need access and they need quality access and they need high quality schools. And so that was kind of where my passion welled up. And fast forward, the way I got into the superintendency was just continuing on that path, always trying to create budgets that were aligned with our instructional plans and strategic plans, always trying to take into consideration the impacts that any of our decision-making was going to have on the classroom unit. Did I do some things early on probably that weren't the best? 
I can't think of any, but I'm sure I did. (laughs) Well, you know, I can't think of any, although I will say this, there were teachers like in the teachers union who were not happy with some of the things that I was suggesting. I still believe they were the right things though. So I'm not saying I made everybody happy. (laughs) I'm just saying that my understanding and the information that was shared with me about how to do curriculum instruction and then starting to teach on my own volition, even though it was adult teaching, it just made a lot of difference in terms of good instruction and that understanding of what needs to happen in a classroom and what assets need to be in there, whether it's materials, whether it's curriculum, whether it's adult bodies who are supervising the students and what adult bodies need to be supervising the adults. All of those things really played into my understanding of systems maintenance and systems change. So when you're talking about staffing models and when you're talking about layoffs or special education infusions, or they all have fiscal implications, but they have tremendous educational implications. And I wouldn't have been able to do that and to be a superintendent without understanding both sides. I think that that's just so huge because for someone like me and Michelle, we go from being teachers and the next day we're in charge of humongous budgets. That's right. and it's yeah. intimidating. I was lucky because I had one year as an ASB director and I got a really fast forward in my fiscal education because all of a sudden you're in charge of all this stuff. But without those kinds of experiences, and that's just like hardly anything, I think that it's really interesting that not only that you have that particular background, which I think it's rare, there's usually only a couple of you in a school district. Yeah. But I think it's really unique that you wanted to know more about do the dollars that I'm agreeing to spend here is it making a difference? It was game changing. And I think it made people look at me differently. Some people were like, you were never a kindergarten teacher, so you'll never understand. And I'm like, I'm not going to say that I understand every single nuance, but I'm also not going to say that I have to sit in every seat in order to have a larger view of the system and of its capabilities. I think in a lot of ways, my background did feed into my ability to really step back and say, you know what, the schools that are successful, you know, let's look at the leadership thing. Let's look at professional development that we've offered our teachers there. Have we adopted materials? Have people really embraced it? Is it a riotous act for us to try to get any uh, training and interventions in there? The school culture plays a huge part. So when it came to me making recommendations to school board and going out and talking to teachers and trying to understand from a leadership perspective, it is what it is. And I think because I was open and because I was listening all the time and because I was always observing, it just lent to this whole ability to kind of see a bigger picture regardless of the noise at at certain levels. I love it. (laughs) I I just think like, I'm just thinking about the amount of credibility that you were able to gain from everyone with everything you put into understanding other people's jobs and other people's impact. That's really unique. That's truly special. I appreciate that. For principals out there who really do seek to understand budgets and central office function, because you know, there's a lot of people out there who say, you know, central office, they don't know what they're doing. They're not on the ground floor. They're just so out of touch. They're making these decisions in isolation. I don't necessarily think that's true all the time. I think in some cases it is, but I also think that principals have a responsibility to learn two things. You don't learn anything else before you go to central office, learn two things. Learn your union contracts. If you have more than one union, just focus on the teachers and the CSEA. Kind of get a global understanding. You don't have to know line and verse, but understand what your rights and capabilities are as administration. A lot of times we give away our right to even enter into a conversation because we don't know the contract. And so we assume, oh my gosh, I can't do that because the teachers will come unglued. Well, they may come unglued, because they just don't want change, but it may not be against the contract. (laughs) So, you know, really informing yourself of what it is that you can do. Now, just because you can do it legally doesn't mean you should, or at least least without some collaboration and some conversation with your teachers, because it's all about that climate and relationship. A lot of times I see principals say, I can't do that. Our union would eat me up. And it's like, talk to your teachers, read your contract, 
and find out where your synergy is and where you can push forward. You may not be able to do what you're trying to do, but maybe there's some variation that you can get done or you can plant seeds so that at a later date you can get there. So that's number one, know your contract. And then number two, figure out how to use your budget. And not just the fact that you have a budget, but as a site administrator, I think it's so valuable to know how those dollars can be moved around mm -hmm. to suit the needs of the students and the staff. Sit down with your CBO or your director of finance or whoever does that role in your district and just ask them once or twice a year, say, can you walk me through the staffing formulas? Can you walk me through the major sources of funding? They'd be happy to. They want you to know what you're doing so they don't have to go back and correct you all the time. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then also recognizing where the skills are. Our secretaries who enter all of this stuff in the system and they know those account strings and where things go and they are a huge wealth yes. of knowledge of yes. like, where yes. we can spend this or if I want to do this, where would it come from? Is there money there? Yeah, for sure. Do not forget about them because they're your soldiers and they can tell you their understanding and then you're armed with that. You can go to district office and say, well, this is what I'm hearing, but I don't understand why I can't move this person from this grade to that grade because I need them there. Or I don't understand why I can't buy these additional resources with these funds because I need them. And usually it's like when you have something you need and you can demonstrate the need for it, there's a place. There's usually a way to make it happen. Yep. And, and those people are the ones to help you. Yep, absolutely. And they want you to know because it's just more work for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> this is the area I feel I'm definitely the weakest budget and the financing and, and figuring out how that goes in the allocation. I've only had my very first experience with having to find the right budget code and the right budget stream to support our teachers that are doing new things at the school. And even that was eye-opening. Now I know who to ask though. I'm just going to ask you, Dr. Phillips. <laughs> yeah. Ask me. I'll tell you the right questions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm going to be like, okay, listen, here's my problem. How should I approach it? What should I investigate first? <laughs> what are the questions I need to ask? That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's right. And I'm here as a resource anytime you need. I think that that's the thing that I enjoy the most where I am in my career right now. And it's because I can help other people. For those of you who are listening, I serve as a professor in the doctoral program at University of Southern California in our Rossier School of Education. And I teach the leadership strand, uh, hoping to teach finance next year. But the idea that I get to interact with these amazing, energetic brains that are trying to grasp all these concepts and employ them into their practice is phenomenal. It's so inspirational. And then in my day job, I am the CEO of a philanthropic nonprofit in Richmond, California. We're called Chamberlain Education Foundation. We work with public schools in the area to support them in raising academic outcomes for students. And so even though I'm not in the public school system anymore, I'm certainly still doing that work. And I get to use all the things that I've learned in governance, in finance, in education and instruction, and primarily leadership to really impact this organization in terms of what our grant making looks like and how it impacts students in our community. But also I get to use my community building skills and my leadership skills to try to bring in community voice and to bring people together and make connections and share knowledge, which is something we're talking about earlier. We just don't do as much as we should. I kind of feel like I have a dream job and I get to teach in the USC program. I'm loving life these days. I was gonna, I was gonna say you have the best parts of our job as exactly. an educator, right? Like being with students that are motivated and want to learn and then also being able to mentor and do all these things and affect the system. You do That's have right. a good job. Yeah. Sure, I love it. I'm sure there's so many years though to get there because I'm sure it wasn't all roses and unicorns and rainbows to get nope. to where you are now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not. I had a lot of sleepless nights. I had a lot of battle scars. You know, when you're trying to make a difference, you're going to ruffle some feathers and some people are not going to appreciate your efforts quite as much as others. And so you accept that. That's part of the job. To me, it's like if you're a leader and everybody loves you and nobody has anything bad to say about you, unless all your kids are at 100% proficiency, you ain't doing something. Because <laughs> if you were at 100% proficiency and you were like, everybody's got it, I'd be like, okay, 
<laughs> you know, I'm gonna leave you alone because you got something's going right. <laughs> yeah. But until we get there, we all have work to do and we all have a role to support. That's so true. You know, I think that Michelle and I have reflected on that a lot because sometimes you have to have the difficult conversation. <laughs> That's right. Some days it's like, well, this is the day where not everybody loves me. And <laughs> it's nice to be able to commiserate. What's interesting about having Michelle here is I was a teacher in this district. So on the one hand, I have a really good idea of what's going to fly and what's not going to fly. But I think sometimes it does hold me back because I don't want to ruffle the feathers. And Michelle, as having not been in this union of teachers, she's less afraid to have those challenging conversations. So she's been such like a great asset to our team. I was with my previous district for 14 years. And then I came over to this district. Of course I was nervous, but you know what I found out since I've been here is exactly what Angie says. Because I don't know anybody, because there's no baggage, there's no attachment. It's been really freeing. It's been really freeing to come to a place and be curious. I ask people all the time, can you tell me the history of that? Tell me more about that. Tell me how we got here. And then to bring my own lens and be like, oh, but what about this? <laughs> you know, like, what about this? Let's just try it. It's been really refreshing. I have teachers in, in my other district and they ask me that. They're like, but isn't it scary? Like, isn't it just really hard to reestablish yourself? I said, no, heck no. I said, I can reinvent myself, okay? I'm a new person here. <laughs> and I'm not scared to come in and say, can we try this? Because it seems like this would help everybody. It would help the students. It would help you guys. I'm really big on enhancing the systems we have with things that make it easier for them better for kids. If we can minimize some of the things that we can automate with technology, let's do this <laughs> because then yeah. we can focus on the real work. Well, that's a real interesting concept of being able to use your transitions to be able to reinvent. I have been in five different districts in my career and I do not regret the movement. At one point, people were like, you move every three, four, five years. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, that, how is that a bad thing? Because what I have found for me, and hopefully other people will resonate with this, every time I have been in a district, I've learned something. I have developed and I have bloomed in an area. And so then when I go to the next district or the next challenge, then I can take that learning, not be mired by all the baggage that, you know, the mistake. That's why I don't remember any mistakes because <laughs> I left them with those other districts. <laughs> But seriously, so every time I've been able to go to a district, as much as people always try to dig up who you were and who, who do you know, from a, a real psychological standpoint, I was able to really go in and become what I knew to be true about the work. I was able to use my experiences to catapult me to a different level of proficiency, whether me taking classes or having lived experience in changing systems, I was able to take that everywhere I went. And so by the time I've got to where I am, it's like, yeah, community building and voice. And I didn't start out with all that stuff. I learned it. I lived it. You know, <laughs> what happens when you don't include teachers in initial conversations and you hoist something on them? I know I've lived through that. <laughs> so that was a yeah. huge mistake. Not that the intent was wrong, but maybe how I did it wasn't really that great. So every time I've moved, I've been able to use those lessons and say, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Even though you guys don't know that I made that mistake, I'm not going to make that same mistake. And so I'm going to get better every single iteration. Yeah. I was a teacher here, but I left the district for two years. So my first year principal was in the Bay Area. Thank goodness I was hundreds of miles away. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the same thing. And it's like, sometimes you feel like you have to make a decision in the moment. And then you're like, why did I do that? There was no urgency. Sometimes there is, but usually there's not. Yeah. And that's usually when, for me, the mistake steps happen. Yep. Um, but something you said earlier is just so important. I hope everybody remembers that. Find that synergy. When you're working with teachers, when those initial conversations need to happen, that you're trying to find the common ground. And then, okay, we have the same idea of what we need the results to be. We might not agree on the path, but it's always going to be for the same outcome. That's, That's right. really important. Thank you for bringing that back up. You're good, Dr. Phillips. I know. <laughs> I'm like, this is so great. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like 
I got better <laughs> as a principal watching this. I've learned so much just from sitting here and listening. This is amazing. I love it when people have that really concrete advice. You said for anyone who's wanting to move from a principal up to the district office that you need to know your contract inside and out in the important matters and not to take advantage of anyone, not to try to thread the needle of what you can and can't do. You need to understand when you have a situation where you have someone who's highly impactful and they need to move from third grade to fifth grade, you can have that conversation that's informed and find that synergy. I think that that's really important. And then the budget stuff is intimidating. Yeah. But the good thing is you can learn small bites. You do not have to be a budget expert in a day. To be honest, when I first got into schools and I was learning the budget process and that was my full-time job, it took me a year because the budget is like this long cycle. And so by the time you get back to the beginning, you've been there a year. In order to get really good at it, you got to be there multiple cycles. And so how can I expect a principal or an assistant principal or anyone to learn all that in a day? It's an intense process. I think the question is, is how do you have bite-sized chunks? Yeah. You mentioned reaching out to your director of finance and your CBO and asking for that stuff. My biggest lasting friendship from my school up north was a CBO. He was awesome. Our school was under construction. He walked me through so much. I learned so much about categorical funds and he was a great person and a great teacher. And then here, I'll give a shout out to David and Dirk in our finance department. They are so patient. They know that we don't know anything and they don't explain <laughs> Explain things in the way yeah. that makes us feel And they don't make way. me feel dumb. They're just like, no, Michelle, let me tell you, do this and this and this, and let's clarify. They don't come from the educational background. They are also wanting to learn more. You know, they also really want to understand more about how a school works. And we're both trying to learn more about the other world. And it makes yeah. such a big difference. So a lot of times uh, I will tell you a, a secret. It's not going to be a secret after it's on here. But... <laughs> A lot of those folks, they want to know more, but they don't feel necessarily welcomed at the school site. And so it would go a long way for you to say, hey, love for you to come out here, walk classrooms with me, and then pick their brain while they're there. Hey, I was really thinking about how to do these things. Can we just talk and have a conceptual conversation around what it would look like? If I was going to do this, where would you suggest I even start looking in terms of my budgets? And in that way, like I said, bite size, like just try to understand the big concepts that they're working with because the first time I printed out a budget it was like this big oh, it's, crazy. <laughs> it's about three reams of paper at least on an old system I don't know what it is now and it was just thousands of lines of code nobody's gonna read that so then I started making these like little primers you know by department and by school like this is how all the dollars roll up and then that was easier for people to consume and some schools do that some districts do that but the idea is just ask things that are important to you you and ask them to explain how they see how they work. And then that'll lead you to other questions. They're nice people in our district. As most districts, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, they're just nice people. And they've been able to help us build so much stuff. We should be more cognizant of inviting them to those classes. This is what you did. This is what you helped us build. All the intervention stuff that we're creating for this educational situation we've never had before. That's a lot of help we're getting from the finance department in particular to make it happen. Yep. So trust me, when you guys are not in the room and they're with their colleagues, their job alikes in other districts, they're bragging on the stuff that you guys are doing. <laughs> That's cool. I never thought about that. Because, I mean, if not for the academic achievement and for all the things that we're doing for students, there would be no meaning to their job. And so they really do play a critical part, you know that, but they want to be a part of a winning team. Every time they get together, they're like, oh, oh yeah, my teachers did this and we were able to do this through negotiations and we had a principal of the year over here who was named. They're totally stoked about the academic achievements. And it would be great if you guys could just, you know, say, hey, you helped us do this. So please come be a part of it. That is really important to remember. We try to be aware of the people in front of us every day, like Mm -hmm. our teachers, our secretaries, our custodians, the nutritional services right in front of us. But that one step removed that we have all of that stuff fully funded and functioning because 
because yeah. of our directors that aren't on site, it's good to remember they are part of that outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Long time ago, I had, I was a director back then and had a principal who walked into my offices and I was in another meeting and he got in front of one of my technicians. Whatever he said, she was in tears by the time he left. So somebody comes to get me and says, you know, hey, Barb is like outside of her mind. She's crying and all this stuff. So I go find out what happened. And apparently from her perspective, this principal barked at her because something wasn't happening to his liking. Now I run outside to go get the principal because it's like, oh no, <laughs> you're not going to come intimidating my staff. And so I met the guy out in the parking lot, <laughs> which is ironic. But we did. We met in the parking lot and I was like, Mr. X, you will go back in here and you will apologize to this lady. He was like, what did I do? You know, you did da 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 da. He was like, I didn't mean to do that. He has a loud voice and his persona intimidated her so that she crumbled. He marched right back in there. And he went and apologized and the story turned out okay, but... All that to say is we have to be very aware as principals, as directors, as whatever role we hold, that those who are doing the work, who are trying to help us, even when they don't explain themselves in a way that we can accept or that we like, that we're all on the same team. It was funny. I didn't really know him that well, but he had enough respect for me to say, oh, I was like, this lady can make your life hell over the next several years. Even though you outrank her, it's the people who do the work who actually are getting stuff done. Just because you order it doesn't make it so. And so you need to respect the workers and the technicians and the secretaries, everybody who is a part of the team. It's not just the principal who's in and he was just like, I am so sorry. I never intended it to be that way. That told me two things is we have to really monitor us as we interact with folks, even in quote unquote adversarial ways. But also as the leader, I didn't outrank him because he's a high school principal and I was a director. So he probably outranked me. But it is incumbent on us to stand up for our staffs and really give them voice and protect them from some of this ridiculous stuff that gets in the way. Let's clear it up so we can all do our jobs better yeah. and keep it moving. There are people in our organization that tell us what to do and we have to do that thing. <laughs> like, that's, that's right. just the way it is. That's right. But I think it's also really, really important to remember that we are all colleagues. We all work for the same organization for the exact same purpose and we have different roles in getting all these results. Growing up like super working class, I grew up on a farm and I've done every kind of disgusting work you can imagine. <laughs> and there's nothing beneath me and I can do anything. We all need to have that mentality because yep. when you do, and I feel like our organization does, then you have people just chipping in. You don't yeah. have to be asked to do things. Something right. needs to be done. I'll do it. We all have a job description and we need to do our job. And sometimes we work beyond that. And that's usually a good thing. That's yeah, climate. Absolutely. Yeah. I've heard that a lot since Angie's become principal when they say that, you know, Angie gets in there and because she gets in there, well, all of us administrators on the team, oh. we get in there and roll our sleeves up. And then I've heard teachers say, wow, you guys always come. We do these drive through things. And I was talking to the librarian the other day and her assistant, she's like, it's amazing that the whole administrative team is here passing out books, sanitizing books. And actually, just a side note, Angie's very good at sanitizing books. <laughs> <laughs> She over sanitizes. I'm like, Angie, stop cleaning that one book. You need to move on. And she's like, no, Michelle, like there's just this one little spot. Like, I don't want them to think that I didn't do my job. Yes. They're now making fun of me for polishing the books. <laughs> they look really good. I feel very lucky and fortunate to be in the high school working with Angie and, and all of the colleagues we have because of that. You know, I think about this a lot and I've talked to other friends who've been administrators a little bit longer than I have, but not a long time. And some of the observations are like, you're in a really good place to learn. Because it's really hard to be in a place and learn things from a leader that climate isn't good and some of the leadership is questionable. And then you get in these habits and then you develop your own baggage about what it means to be a leader and there might be mistrust. You might learn a bad habit. I think that's the biggest thing is yeah. I feel like I'm learning all of the best habits. <laughs> and just shaking her head. But it's really true. I'm just really aware of that. And I think the other thing that I'm learning from you, Dr. Phillips, as we're talking and you're giving us all of these actionable tips is your underlying foundation is being self-reflective and connecting the dots that way. Everything that you're talking about, it really comes back to that. You're like, oh, well, I'm in the financing, but I want to know where the money's going to be. So I'm going to seek that out. So I have
have an understanding. Oh, but then I did this and I went to another district, but I took what I learned and I use that. That's the other thing that I'm learning how powerful that is, that self-awareness and self-reflection, wanting to continue to grow and be curious. You're able to connect the dots. You know, as a finance person, here's all the things that I'm allocating. Here's the direct impact. Here's where I'm at. Here's why. Yeah, exactly. Here's why we're doing it. Yeah. Exactly. And if anybody listening is thinking about education and leadership in general is just that really connecting the dots, being self-reflective, understanding the purpose and position that you're in, what you can do to affect change and learning from your mistakes. Sounds like you took good notes in class. I did. (laughs) Thank you you for the A. I did have one more question. Angie and I don't talk about this too much, but obviously we're female. We are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out we're female. (laughs) I'm interested in that too, because when I think finance, I do not think of a female. And that is the stereotype that I have in my head and I am fully aware of it. And also just being a woman of color, how to navigate that? It's a great question. The way I have navigated positions that I have been blessed enough to have earned, because I don't think anybody gave them to me. I do think that I was prepared for them and then someone took a chance on me. It wasn't as though somebody just gave me a job and, oh, by the way, I was good at it. You know, it didn't just happen. (laughs) So I think that preparation is very critical, especially as women, we prepare all the time. The problem is we don't pull the trigger and actually apply for stuff that we're overqualified for because it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. Oh, you know, it's a guy's world. And so I just kind of felt like (laughs) I'm already showing that I can do this. And by the way, I'm doing half of his job over there too. So I'm gonna go get my own, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't know whether it was naivete at the time because I was pretty young back then or whether it was just confidence of if I don't know it, I will learn it. I think that as women, we hold ourselves back to say, well, I'm not quite ready or I'm not sure if this is a good time. There's never a good time. Or on the other hand, it's always a good time. It's always a good time to learn. It's always a good time to grow and expose yourself to something new that's at a higher level because you will rise to the level. I had a little bit of audacity in me on my first cabinet job. I was a director and I was like, you know what? I could do this and I'm going to do it. And I just started applying. And about the third or fourth application, I got to um, Ontario Montclair School District and was like, yeah, and I can do this and I can do that. And they were like, okay. And so when I got there, I didn't know anybody. (laughs) I didn't have any family there. But I knew what I felt like was my passion, and that was trying to orient a system that was based on student and academic needs. I just let that drive me. And at the time, I had just started my USC program. That was a long time ago. I just felt like, well, I was in a program. I was doing my first assistant superintendent program, and I had these two little kids. I think my kids were in, like, kindergarten and first grade. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. And guess what? It didn't stop me. I think if anything, and and I'm not going to say that it's easy, but if anything, it showed my kids my tenacity and my dedication to education. And, you know, I would sit up and do homework with them and do my own homework. They would see me reading, which ain't a bad thing these days with all the Netflix and everything else we got going on. They would see me studying. And so my thing to them as then they're in elementary school is, well, if I can study, then what's your excuse, right? Raising up to African-American sons and African-American kids by virtue of subgroup do not fare well in our schools. And so by hell or high water, I was going to make sure that my kids got everything that was available to them. And them having a role model of hard work and academics in the house was one more asset for them to be able to pull on. It was not easy. You know, we'd be on the weekends, my kids and my husband race cars. That's a whole nother story. (laughs) But (laughs) we'd be at the racetrack and I'd be in the truck reading my book, taking notes because I still had homework and papers to write. It was a training ground for me because I knew I could do anything if I could get through <laughs> through what I went through and get that thing done and defend and graduate well yeah. I guess I could pretty much do anything, huh? And so I started doing whatever it was that was called on me to do. So then when it became time to move forward into these positions and change jobs, it was like, I think I can do it. It built my confidence. Every success built another confidence that propelled me on. As women, we have to encourage each other. I had no female mentors Mm -hmm. at the time. Both of my major mentors were men. One was African-American and one was white. And they both added 
tremendously different lenses and perspectives for me to consider. And that was great. It would have been so much more well-rounded if I had a female leader that I could have also tapped into. It didn't happen until years later, but that also made me very convicted to make sure I was a mentor for others and a resource for others. So anytime someone comes to me and says, can you help me? Can you explain something to me? Can you mentor me? I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. But I do expect a lot from my mentees, right? I expect you to do the work. I expect you to be thinking, I'm going to help you help you (laughs) is what it boils down to. It actually reminds me of Michelle's story. You know, when she was hired, she hadn't been an administrator before, but that didn't mean she couldn't learn the job. I think that having that confidence in yourself that you had, that you've learned all this, you know, you can learn more. We can always learn more, but having that mentality that you can, I think it stands in the way of a lot of women. There's like limitless possibilities. That's how I feel. Right. And and it's true. First year principal last year started USC, school closed for a pandemic, recreate (laughs) online school, husband has cancer. Yeah, sure. can we not do, yeah, you know, that's right. seriously. And I that's think right. that's the mentality. Let's just do it. <laughs> that's and right. The worst they can say is no. The worst for me though, when I think about the worst thing I can do is not trying or not giving that's it a right. thought or not putting myself out there and taking opportunities to the best of my ability to be prepared, but to take the risk. Like to me, I don't want to regret that because I also know that these moments don't come all the time. If there's an opportunity, I'm going to just go for it, even though I'm like, I might be grossly underqualified, but that's okay. (laughs) Well, just make sure that you keep your preparation up. And that's not to say you have to have checked every single box of what they're asking for. But like you said, have the confidence that, hey, I may not have all 10 things, but hey, I got six. And the thing I have that nobody else has is I have that confidence and that passion to move forward, to move not just my own interest forward, but the whole organization, as well as the students. You mentioned cancer, um, Angela. So right after, literally the weekend I graduated from USC, that Monday I was diagnosed with breast cancer. (laughs) And uh, you're here and you're good. I'm here and I'm good. (laughs) But the point is don't let stuff hold you back. We don't know, you know, how long our time's going to be here on this earth. We don't know what God's plan, and I don't want to get into religion, but I am a faithful person. So I don't know what's in store for me for the rest of my days. And I don't know when those days will end. And so just like Michelle said, it's like, go for it. When something doesn't work out, which everything's not going to work out all the time, you get back up, you get back on the horse and you keep moving forward because the only person who can truly stop you is you. Mm -hmm. So true. And I think that we hold ourselves back all the time. We might look back and see that someone that we perceive to be less qualified moved ahead, Mm -hmm. but they took the step. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Take the step. I feel I inspired. Think, I know, right? I, I feel like doing I something. I will polish all the books. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Angie. You have all weekend. Just polish all the books, all right? Yes. <laughs> then one day when it's safe, you can go to Dr. Phillips' house and polish all her books. And I know. I, there's so many books back it's there. It's beautiful. It's my ideal library. That's amazing. <laughs> In all these Zoom calls, I'm like, God, everyone's house is so much nicer than mine. <laughs> well, look, you can only see that side of the room. You can't see that side of the room. <laughs> the beauty and trick of Zoom, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you don't see my pajama pants. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. I'm, in my, I'm in my office and you can see a music stand yeah. that I use as a standing desk. So. <laughs> That's your standing like, desk. Like, yes, my standing desk. I make it work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It has been a blast. I have had so much fun with you all. We're now in community. And so anytime you need a kick in the pants or a word of encouragement, you call me and I'll be right there. Oh, you better brace yourself. I know, right? (laughs) Don't worry. I have it on tape and I'm not editing it out. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. staying in for the whole world to hear. So got it on record, everybody. All right. Take care. like this episode don't forget to rate us in apple Podcasts or wherever you get this show it'll help others find us yeah and you can follow us on instagram at in the principal's office pod and on twitter at principal's pod and we'll see you next time in the principal's office Mm